Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, friends and neighbors. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. It's Friday, March 19, time for this week's roundtable. Looking back on the news of the week with three top political reporters. After signing the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, President Biden and top administration officials are off on a nationwide campaign to sell the package to the American people. But he and the vice president interrupt their tour today to meet in Atlanta with leaders of the Asian American community in the wake of the murder of eight people, including six women of Asian descent, at Atlanta area massage parlors. Meanwhile, the White House announces it will meet its goal of 100 million vaccinations today, six weeks early. Mitch McConnell warns Democrats that all hell will break loose if they dare try to change the filibuster. And on the state front, two Democratic governors, New York's Andrew Cuomo and California's Gavin Newsom, are fighting for their political lives. So much to talk about, so let's get right to it with Hunter Walker, White House correspondent for Yahoo News. Hello, Hunter. Hey, Bill. How are you? All right. Jason Dick, deputy editor for CQ Roll Call. Hello, Jason. Good morning, everybody. Uh, And making her first appearance, the first of many, we hope, on the Bill Press Pod Roundtable, Melanie Mason, national political correspondent for the LA Times. Welcome, Melanie. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the big news of the day. Uh, Hunter, the president, ordered the flags at the White House flying half-staff in memory of the Asian women or the victims, all of them, of the Atlanta massacre. Uh, The president, the vice president, will meet with Asian American leaders in Atlanta today, which is a different approach or a different tone maybe to what happened than we first heard from Captain Jay Baker uh, of the law in the Atlanta area law enforcement, who uh, had this comment about uh, the murderer uh, uh, in this case. With investigators, they interviewed him this morning, and he was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope. And uh, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. Yeah, really bad day for him. Hunter, this has been going on for a long time. Have law enforcement and maybe members of the media? Uh, taken too long to recognize this wave of hate crimes against Asian Americans? Um, you know, I, I don't know about law enforcement. I mean, I think there's, there's, you know, this basically started um, about a year ago around the time of the pandemic. And I know from people um, inside the, the Trump era administration that um, DOJ enforcement of hate crimes was way down. That division was just kind of uh, neutered for lack of a better word. Uh, so that that may have affected things here. Um, I think also when we look at kind of how hate crimes are reported, um, it is really a patchwork. And, and also, and, and 
you know, I heard this actually talking to White House officials this week, but also more generally talking to, you know, Asian activists over the years in the community. Um, we are not very mature in how we talk about what a lot of people term the AAPI space, Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Uh, we, we talk about this very large, diverse group that includes, you know, uh, the South Asian community, um, you know, India, Pakistan, um, Indonesia, you know, Filipino community, and then all of East Asia. Um, and I think the lack of data on this, plus the the lack of focus on hate crimes um, in the prior administration, probably changed the way we recognize this. For for me personally, it's just kind of baffling because I can't imagine you know, reacting to really any moment, but this one with this kind of xenophobia, it just makes so little sense to me. And Jason, as you know, covering the Hill, this uh, uh, and ended up in a very heated uh, hearing yesterday uh, in the House where Congresswoman uh, Grace Meng accused her Republican colleagues, again, of not taking this issue seriously. Here she is. I want to go back to something that Mr. Roy said earlier. Your president and your party and your colleagues can talk about issues with any other country that you want, but you don't have to do it by putting a bullseye on the back of Asian Americans across this country, on our grandparents, on our kids. Uh, Jason, what connection can we make, if any, to Donald Trump calling the pandemic the Chinese flu? The Chinese flu, he called it the Kung flu, or, you know, people in his circle called it the Kung flu. I mean, it, it's like it was uh, it, it sort of, to me, you know, uh, undeniably racist uh, in, in its tropes. And, uh, you know, some people have been speaking out about this for, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, you know, our, some of us know Kurt Bardella, uh, who is a former uh, Republican staffer. And, you know, he worked at the, did some stuff for the Lincoln Project recently. I uh, won't talk about that too much. Uh, but he, yeah. he, he's been talking about the demonization of Asian Americans from his platforms, particularly he writes uh, for USA Today and uh, and you know, and kind of waving his arms saying like, this is going to end badly, you know, like we're enduring a lot of, of intimidation and, and members of Congress, uh, you know, Grace Meng, Mark Takano in, in California. I mean, like several uh, members of, of Congress who, uh, you know, of, of AAPI descent have been talking about this. And this, what's interesting is like this hearing yesterday was not called because of the Atlanta murders. Mm -hmm. It was, it was called previously, but it just sort of, you know, like showed the currency of this issue and how, you know, how tactile it is now. I mean, they just had this very recent example, but they've been talking about doing, you know, something, some greater examination of it for a while. And again, let's not remember that, you know, in during World War II, we put Japanese Americans in internment camps. This is not a new thing for right, a right. lot of folks in this community. Uh, and Melanie, if there's, uh, I believe without even checking the facts that California must have the largest AAPI population uh, in the country, and we've seen incidents of this, uh, these hate crimes in California. What, what signs do you see there? What action is taken? What awareness of, uh, of the issue is? I've been struck by how visceral uh, this issue is um, when you're talking to, um, quite frankly, friends and family, colleagues, lawmakers. Um, I think that there really is this sense that this is 
um, a, a community, our own community that is being affected. And I think to, to go back to what Hunter said, I think when we're talking about how sophisticated we are about talking about these communities, I think that we are playing catch up, quite frankly, because a lot of times when we political journalists are talking about communities of color, it feels like Asian Americans are sort of the considered last in the list. We're talking about black voters a lot. We're talking about Latinos. And we're not talking about the, the subtlety, the nuance of this vast Asian American community, which is much harder to characterize uh, politically. I also think that there's a sophistication that needs to happen when we're talking about this particular crime here in Atlanta. I think that when we saw people immediately, particularly law enforcement, try and play down the potential hate crime aspect of it and trying to play down, was, was this person targeting Asian women? Um, it, it almost seemed like we wanted like a very blaring you know, uh, sign of this guy saying, you know, I hate Asian people, ergo I am doing this. And the truth is, is that people don't necessarily communicate their motives quite so clearly. And I've seen a lot of people say, you know, we need to hold in, in, in this space the potential of a lot of factors going in, of misogyny, of racism, of class. It can be multiple factors going in all at once. And I think that these crimes show that, that we need to be, quite frankly, a little bit more nuanced when we're talking about, uh, about these crimes. Sometimes hate crimes are not going to sort of hit us over the head with um, what people's motivations are, but we still have to recognize that the end result is a community feeling under siege. Right. Uh, I've seen the phrase more and more often, racist misogyny uh, used since uh, Atlanta, which is a new phrase maybe all of us have to get used to. So, Hunter, again, the meeting, um, the, the plan, the trip of President Biden to Atlanta today was originally uh, entirely focused on covid and half of the day will be still focused on that as part of this, what they're calling the Help is Here tour to sell the stimulus package. Is President Biden doing what, with this stimulus, what Barack Obama failed to do with the last one? I mean, I think they're certainly trying to, um, you know, if you will, take a page out of the Trump playbook. I think we all remember how he dramatically signed the checks um, and Joe Biden is really you know, minding the political store, so to speak. Um, and, you know, really, the, the administration has been relentless in its messaging on, you know, the vaccines uh, and the checks. And you're seeing them, you know, on Twitter, make that point in a steady drumbeat, you know, 100 million shots in arms, $1,400 checks. Um, so I think they really are trying to highlight that. I would just point out that, that certainly on the shots front, um, you know, it was clear from the beginning that he set himself a pretty low bar. Um, that million <laughs> figure was Trump's pace. It was a pace that he was clearly going to be able to beat. And so this is a little bit the equivalent of throwing down a dunk on like the little tykes, you know, basketball. <laughs> um, but he is certainly throwing down that dunk with great aplomb. <laughs> yeah, well, why set a goal that you can't meet, right? I mean, <laughs> it's very small politics, and this is what the Democrats for years have been accused of not doing. So, so I think you're totally right. He is he is playing the politics here very carefully. And Melanie, to what extent are the American people aware that uh, this stimulus is passed and that they're that they're getting these checks or they're getting these help? That, that that's what the president's all. That's what this tour is all about, right? Right, and I think uh, in some ways, I think that that it's almost overthinking things. If you have fourteen hundred dollars show up in your banking account, 
you're going to notice it. <laughs> if you have <laughs> extra money, uh, if you're a parent of a child and you're now getting money because of, of, of this child credit, you're going to notice it. I mean, I think that the way that the stimulus package was crafted, as opposed to the stimulus package uh, of the Obama era, which was much more subtle in its benefits, um, I, I think that it's they're almost hitting you over the head. And in fact, I've seen a lot of memes on social media about the Biden bucks um, or, you know, the stimulus hitting <laughs> and people going out buying ridiculous things. I don't think that they're going to have a problem with people being unaware of extra money in their bank account. That said, clearly they're scarred from the Obama years, the fact that the stimulus was turned into a political cudgel back then. And so I think they're trying to head that off now. But look, extra money is extra money. People are going to, to notice it. And so I think in some ways this is just sort of gilding the lily. Yeah. So overall, Jason, in terms of the administration's response to, to the coronavirus pandemic, um, I hate to use the phrase "turning the corner," but uh, has the have has the Biden have the Biden people managed politically and from a public relations point of view to turn the corner to now we where we think of it as maybe there's an end in sight, right? Yeah, and I think that it's I, I do think that they're it, they have been very careful about managing expectations. Uh, I, I think you know Hunter talking about the you know dunking on on a little kid is pretty apt. But at at the same time, you know how many times did we hear from Trump? We're turning the corner. It's right around the corner. You know, like we turned so many corners, we were going in circles uh, <laughs> with with Trump. And so actually having something to show while you're saying that we're turning the corner. I mean, infections are down, 100 million shots in arms. Those are pretty tangible, like, things that are happening. Like, for me, you know, I was able to make an appointment for my, you know, first shot. And and that that's something that is, is you know, really changes your way of thinking uh, about about this. And I, I think that they they can't do this enough if they want to sell it. I mean, like, they're, you know, the 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 COVID relief package, for instance, is very popular, but that doesn't mean that Republicans are not going to try to define it to their own political advantage. And I think Biden knows that. And, and you, and he can't, he, you know, he, he was around for, you know, seeing this very, you know, a very needed stimulus package in 2009, 2010 get like derided uh, when it might have averted a worldwide catastrophe. So Biden's, you know, right to sort of be like, OK, we're done legislating for a little while. And we're going to go on the road and sell it. Uh, and so the next crisis uh, on the uh, horizon, if not, uh, it's not really on the horizon, it's actually happening right now also, uh, is what's happening at the border. Uh, Melanie, the administration, the Biden people don't want to call this a crisis. They insist it's not a crisis. It's just a challenge. Uh, what the hell is it? <laughs> right. I mean, the vocabulary distinction is, um, is is a little bit rich. It is it is a problem, and it is it is an intractable problem. It is a problem that has obviously predated Biden, um, and I I think that the prospects of coming together with a comprehensive immigration reform package look dimmer and dimmer by the day. Uh, I I do think that in some ways this episode that we're seeing now really speaks to how much domestic politics in the United States has ripple effects worldwide. Because what we are seeing is a wave of migrants coming because either smugglers or you know people living in Central and uh, South um, and Central America themselves are are believing this is going to be a friendlier administration. Trump was so verbally and visibly hostile to migrants, and Biden is going to be more humane. Now is the time to come, and that's why you're hearing Biden, uh, uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security, the coordinator on the southern border, all of these administrative 
administration officials saying, don't come right now, don't do this. Uh, but it's hard. It's hard to combat what I think is a very global perception that this is going to be an administration that is friendlier to immigrants. And the challenge or the crisis for the Biden administration, whatever word you want to use, is that they don't have the uh, political leeway like Trump did to be kind of one note on this issue, right? I mean, Trump really could just hammer immigrants. That's what the base loved. Um, and he didn't really have to worry too much about keeping other elements of his flank that want a more immigrant-friendly policy. And the truth is, is that for Biden, many in his party want to see a more humane treatment of migrants, a more humanitarian treatment. And so Biden has to balance a sort of hardline message in don't come now, we don't have the capacity um, to, to process you, um, but can't sound like Trump. And that's a much difficult, much more difficult line to walk. Sure. Um, Hunter, from your sources at the White House, how serious a problem is this for them? I mean, in, in terms of the actual situation at the border, let's go through a, different, a couple different buckets here. Um, this is not a record influx. It is an unusual uh, number for mm. February, um, but this is not, you know, any kind of special search. Uh, but I think, as Melanie was pointing out, this is just extremely politically fraught. Um, you know, progressives are, are pressuring them on every front, uh, including reminding Biden that he promised effectively a deportation moratorium. Um, and that certainly isn't really what we have seen here. Um, so they are walking that tightrope of, you know, his campaign promises, um, a, a restive um, progressive faction in the base, um, and then also dealing with this in a concrete way during a pandemic, when of course there's, you know, um, unique concerns around moving and housing people. Um, I think one thing that I would just point out, though, is while this may not be a record or unprecedented situation on our border, I think it's unquestionably fair to use the term crisis um, for the situation in um, the Northern Triangle, they call it, you know, down there, um, El Salvador, Guatemala, this, this region um, in sort of Central America. Um, the violence there has been very bad. We're now seeing uh, major issues with the government in Honduras. Um, the, the economy there was bad pre-pandemic. This has been a crisis that's been going on for years. And, and that is something that is driving a lot of that influx. Um, the coordinator for the southern border has talked about needing to accelerate aid to those countries um, as sort of a, an effort to target the problem down there. But even as she has said that, she's pointed out that we've already given a lot of aid there and the conditions are still quite bad. But I think, you know, this is a problem that is not going away as long as, you know, our neighbors are living in such bad conditions. Uh, and Jason, while this is happening, the House yesterday passed two immigration measures. Uh, one, uh, permanent status, or at least a path to citizenship for the Dreamers, about 800,000 of them, uh, and also uh, some temporary and renewable uh, status for farm workers. Uh, either of those bills have a prayer of a chance in the Senate? Um. Probably not. Uh, I mean, I mean, and I'm not trying to be dour or or flip about it, but you know, the Republicans, you know, really do feel pretty good about their chances of retaking one or both chambers in 2022. Immigration is, you know, one of the more salient 
issues for them and for their base. You know, when it's a 50-50 Senate and a five-seat majority uh, in in the House for Democrats, it's not it's not tough to see you know like the the majority in your sights. And so you know, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader, Republican from Kentucky, is very good at doing nothing. Um, and <laughs> he and he has you know he doesn't really have to do anything but just simply sit on this. And then if the you know Democrats, as you mentioned at the top of the of the podcast, if the Democrats try to alter the filibuster rule, uh, you know, boy, there will there will be a pearl shortage from all the pearl clutching uh, in the Republican <laughs> caucus because they'll they'll use that that Democrats are changing the rules and and so forth to try to ram things through on you know heavens to Betsy a majority rule so but you know so that it, it for, for them it's a no lose situation to just stymie this right and it's not just immigration right it's pretty clear uh, that there uh, that Republicans will uh, will block using the filibuster. Um, any immigration legislation, infrastructure, perhaps climate change, and certainly voting rights. Uh, in his maiden speech on the Senate floor, Senator Warnock of Georgia uh, raised this issue of using the filibuster again as a racist tool. I stand before you saying that this issue, access to voting and preempting politicians' efforts to restrict voting, is so fundamental to our democracy that it is too important to be held hostage by a Senate rule, especially one historically used to restrict expansion of voting rights. It is a contradiction to say we must protect minority rights in the Senate while refusing to protect minority rights in the society. So, Hunter... President Biden, who has been a traditionalist, certainly in the Senate, this week said he was open to some changes in the filibuster. I mean, that's a BFD for Biden, isn't it? It's a big change for a guy who sort of was schooled in the Senate. You know, one talking about sort of returning to the old, potentially even mythical <laughs> civility that, that a lot of the old timers say existed in Congress. Um but, you know, I think, uh, as, as we just pointed out, with on the immigration front, for example, he is between this rock and a hard place, and actual permanent reform just doesn't seem to be able to make it through current Senate structures. Uh, I, I think Bernie Sanders' comments on this were pretty interesting, um, where he pointed out, as, as we have, that, you know, people do seem to be very aware that they're receiving these checks, but... I don't think the greater public cares if they receive it through reconciliation or not. Um, so I think it's an interesting thing where, you know, Joe Biden may have more care or reverence for the old process than a lot of members of the public. Uh, Melanie, doesn't it doesn't look like that Schumer is going to have to move uh, to make some change in the filibuster? I don't see how any element of the Democratic agenda, with maybe, maybe the exception of infrastructure, um, but that's a, with a huge sort of caveat, um, gets through without some sort of either reform, if not outright elimination of the filibuster rules. Because what we have seen now in this ultra-polarized uh, Senate is that things such as voting rights and things such as immigration reform um, there's just not a lot of appetite for cross-party cooperation. And I think the thing that is interesting is you see 
Joe Biden even moving a little bit on on how uh, he regards the filibuster. And he is somebody who actually served in the Senate back in the the good old days as they were, where there maybe was this potential for um, big deal making and cross party cooperation, although perhaps I think a little exaggerated at this point. The people who are now the staunchest defenders of the filibuster on the Democratic side are people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who never served in that Senate. That Senate has not existed for a long time. And so you have this bizarre circumstance in which the, the senators who were saying, we need to preserve this bipartisan cooperation, I don't think they're actually drawing from actual experience. I think that they're drawing from this hypothetical bipartisan cooperation that you know existed during the times of LBJ. And so I do think that the pressure is going to ramp up from progressive activists. Uh, the argument that I've heard a lot from, from these activists is, look, Democrats have the the barest of majorities, and it is going to be so tough for them to retain it in 2022. And the best way that they can win over the vote next year is to say, we delivered results. We actually got things done. And if you allow the filibuster to prevent accomplishments on the long list of promises that Biden made when he ran uh, for president, um, if that doesn't happen, then it's going to be really, really hard for Democrats to say, we need to keep our majority. And so I do think that there is both a policy imperative for some sort of reform, but also a political one for Democrats. And so I do think that's why you're seeing Biden change his tone a little bit. I think that Schumer is going to have to try and find a way to thread the needle. And I think we're really going to be looking at Senators Manchin, Cinema, and others. I don't think they're the only ones. They're just sort of the ones most out there um, to say, if not outright elimination, is there some modification that could grease the wheels a little bit? Because right now there's just really nothing that's going to move in the Senate. Right. And of course, those modifications are what they're talking about. Uh, we're going to have to take a break here very quickly. But before we do, uh, Jason, and if Melanie and Hunter, you want to weigh in on this too. Um, but Jason, I, let me start with you. So if if there were any need to see a difference between uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, I thought we saw it this week. We know when um, Joe Scarborough once asked uh, Donald Trump whether Vladimir Putin was a killer, uh, Trump's response was, well, we kill a lot of, I'm par paraphrasing just a little bit here. Well, we kill a lot of people in this country too. So, so what? I mean, he basically really said that. Joe Biden was asked this week by George Stephanopoulos, do you think Vladimir Putin's a killer? And Biden said, yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, wow. Seems, seems pretty elementary. Uh, the former, <laughs> former head of the KGB, uh, somebody who's been linked to the assassinations of his political rivals over and over again, uh, somebody who, you know, I, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't seem like we lack for evidence, but Trump just couldn't go there for whatever reason. But Biden, I mean, this is part of his appeal, right? I mean, he, he seems like, you know, a like when he sees like the sky is blue, he's like, hey, the sky's blue. <laughs> uh, refreshing change, I guess we can call it, right? <laughs> All right. So Melanie Mason, LA Times, Hunter Walker from Yahoo News and Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call, our panel today. Uh, let's uh, take a quick pause out, time out, and then we'll be back to talk about two governors who are in trouble in this country. It is the Bill Press Pod, and today's roundtable brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. We salute the good men and women of the Teamsters Union under President Jim Hoffa. They are America's largest and most diverse union, 1.4 million members. Uh, every 
branch of work in this country you can think of, represented by the Teamsters from vegetable workers in California to construction workers in Las Vegas, bakery workers in Maine, healthcare workers in Rhode Island, everything from, as they say, A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers, all members of the great Teamsters Union. Check out their website at teamster.org. We thank them for their good work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back on today's roundtable. Hunter Walker joins us from Yahoo News, uh, Jason Dick from CQ Roll Call, and Melanie Mason from the L.A. Times. Uh, In California, reported this week, 2.1 million people signed uh, petitions to recall Gavin Newsom, the governor of California. Melanie Mason, what's going on? Is there any doubt that this will qualify? And um, is Gavin Newsom in trouble? Well, it certainly looks like the recall will qualify. Uh, they collected the, the number of signatures they have to collect is just under one and a half million, and, and uh, proponents say that they've collected well over two. So, assuming that they keep up their very high verification rate, it looks like this is likely headed to the ballot. And I think that the firmest sign of this was this week. You actually saw the Newsom team engage on this topic really for the first time. They kicked off their anti-recall campaign in earnest. So if anybody is anticipating that they're going to have to fight this battle, it's Newsom. And I think that 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 is the surest sign yet uh, that this might be real. Uh, And I think that the question of if he is in trouble is a good one. I mean, look, if you had asked me a couple months ago, will the recall qualify? I think I would have told you no. And I think most political observers in the state would have told you no. So of course, this, this effort has gone a lot farther than I think what the conventional wisdom had said. 
But we're also going to be entering sort of a very different political uh, era now because I think so much of what's driving this recall is pandemic fatigue in the state. There are certainly uh, Republicans Mm -hmm. and right-wing activists who don't like Newsom no matter what. But in order to collect 2.1 million signatures, these aren't just hardcore Republicans. These are uh, independents, and these are some Democrats who are frustrated with what has been a relatively strict uh, lockdown response to the coronavirus, certainly compared to other states. We're going to be entering this phase, though, where schools are starting to open, the economy is opening up, shots are getting in people's arms. And I do wonder, by the time that the recall is actually put to the voters in the probably the fall, are people still going to be feeling quite so frustrated uh, with Newsom? Um, so I do think that that might be a, a saving grace for the governor. Another might be the fact that the Republican Party here in California still has a brand problem. And so far, we have not seen any prominent Democrat put themselves forward as an alternative to Newsom. If that maintains, if it really is the the dynamic of Republicans versus the incumbent Democratic governor, that's a much better place for Newsom to be. So, so long as he can keep all of his Democrats in tow, Newsom will probably be able to weather the storm. But it is certainly not a, uh, a challenge that he was anticipating. And quite frankly, it was not one that I think he or his advisors took very seriously until it became clear that this was real. Mm-hmm. And also, there's so far no celebrity like an Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, on the ballot. <laughs> At right. least so Arnold, far. Arnold was a, a, a unicorn. I mean, he had the name yeah. recognition. <laughs> he had the popularity. Uh, I, I think it, we will likely see a similar kind of circus in the flood of uh, of candidates. There were over 160 candidates on the ballot in 2003 to replace Gray Davis. But as long as, you know, The Rock doesn't jump in or some other celebrity, I think that you're probably not going to see uh, 2003 Redux. Okay. Now, on the other coast, on this coast, on the East Coast, it is Andrew Cuomo in trouble. Hunter Walker has, uh, he's sort of taken time out from the White House to report a lot on the uh, impeachment battles, uh, the troubles for Andrew Cuomo in New York. Uh, Hunter, one of your stories even caused the state assembly to shut down in the middle of a vote. You're stirring things up up there. Uh, How do you read, is Cuomo going to survive this? So, you know, Bill, I think uh, you and I first met uh, many, many years ago when I was doing reporting in New York. So I've returned returned to New York era scandal, New York scandals, which are kind of my favorite topic for a moment. (laughs) Um, But I will point out, by the way, this, this, isn't necessarily a departure from the White House. Because as the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo is one of the most prominent figures in the Democratic Party. He is currently the chair of the National Governors Association. Right. Um, he's been very close with Joe Biden to the point he was a rumored attorney general pick. Um, and also key figures in his administration, including his top aide, Melissa DeRosa, who's directly implicated in this nursing home deaths cover-up, were advising Steve Ricchetti on, on COVID um, during the transition, uh, Cuomo was really held up um, by Biden, who called him the gold standard, and other Democrats as a model for dealing with COVID. And now the governor is just completely embroiled in scandal. I mean, I believe um, seven women have accused him of sexual harassment and assault, including reporters, former staffers, um, and just a random guest at a wedding, who, by the way, was a campaign staffer for Joe Biden. Um, and also, you know, I... I it's very hard because I want to talk about both of these things because they're both extremely important and I don't want to take away from one or the other. But this nursing home thing is incredibly serious. Um, the New York Attorney General um, 
released a 76-page report finding that um, Biden had undercounted figures, uh, Biden, sorry, Cuomo had undercounted figures on nursing home deaths after essentially ordering them to accept COVID-positive patients. Um, And, you know, that's now the subject of a federal investigation. So there's so much going on here. Um, And my stories this week dealt with the fact that the legislature is now dealing with the question of impeachment, which must begin in the New York State Assembly. Um, And I obtained audio of the four-hour meeting where um, essentially the speaker, the assembly speaker, Carl Heasty, who has total control in this moment, announced his plans to do what has now been termed sort of an impeachment investigation. And essentially, he's having their Judiciary Committee do an initial investigation uh, prior to actually introducing articles of impeachment. Um, And there are a lot of people in the assembly who are unhappy with that um, because essentially they feel like, particularly on the nursing home front, it's already been thoroughly investigated. Um, The impeachment kicks off a trial uh, that is sort of due process here, uh, much like on the federal level, it sort of happens in the state Senate there, um, where they have a court of impeachments. Mm-hmm. So there's this big debate about how they're going to go forward on it. But I think the most telling thing to finally now answer your question is on this four hour call of the Assembly Democratic Caucus, they were very divided on how to move forward. Some wanted this investigation, some wanted straight out impeachment, some wanted him to resign. Not a single one wanted him to stay. So between all of these investigations and all of the opposition within his own party, I think Andrew Cuomo's days are numbered. It's just a question of how and when. Uh, Jason, um, the I think the, one of the reasons that, that I would argue, and I've also seen other people report, that uh, Cuomo may be in so much trouble, all the things that Hunter talked about, but also the fact that people don't like him because he's not a really nice man. Um, There was a video, a little audio rather, released uh, just yesterday or maybe this morning by, this is the governor talking to a worker for the Workers' Party in New York uh, who had made the comment that Andrew Cuomo was... uh, uh, better than little better than a Republican, something like along that lines. Uh, this, this this audio is not not really clear, but what the governor says in response is, "You keep saying that about me, and I'm going to call you a child rapist." Basically, here's the exchange. If you ever say, "Well, he's better than a Republican again," I'm going to say you're better than a child rapist. How about that? How about that, Jason? <laughs> How about that? And, and I, I feel like, you know, in, in some ways, I mean, like what the political calculus, you know, that, that Hunter is describing is, OK, if he's a jerk, right, like we can deal with that if he keeps people safe. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, and if he keeps people safe, then we can maybe tolerate a, a little bit of, you know, the, the zipper problem, right? Or or the flirty problem. But the fact that he's a jerk, the fact that he uh, is doesn't seem to have very many much impulse control when he's around women, and the fact that he covered up uh, people dying, and that was like his kind of claim to fame, right? Remember the, yeah. the briefings at the beginning of the pandemic were musty TV, because he, he looked like he was in control. Like, I mean, the fact that there are no, if this is a three-legged stool, all the all the legs <laughs> cut off, you know, uh, th- there's nothing to stand on. He's not a nice guy. Uh, he's got some personal problems, and and he, like, covered up people dying. 
Yeah. All right. So that's the end for Andrew Cuomo. What a great roundtable. Thank you so much, uh, Melanie Mason, Jason Dick, and Hunter Walker. We won't let you go, however. Uh, with all the things that we cover, even those of us in the news business, there's usually something that makes us just stop and think, wow, what about that story? We call it your favorite story of the week. Uh, Hunter, we'll let you go first. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with this Vanity Fair story um, that detailed um, a private jet flight from Tennessee, uh, where, where a couple basically members of high society um, took a plane to the Capitol, um, may or may not have participated in um, the protests or the riots that took place that day and were basically back in the air, you know, an hour or so after the Capitol was secured. Uh, and it's this incredible piece that involves um, the guy who chartered the jet trying to deny it was him and then accidentally leaving his phone on um, when the reporter called him to come out. But it also really struck me because this is now at least the second incident I'm aware of where there was a private jet full of people who participated in the insurrection. Um, it's, it's really, really just incredible. Um, and I think, you know, First off, it's important to January 6th was not that long ago. It's important we, we keep talking about that. Um, and as we analyze it, I think, you know, the cast of characters was extremely economically diverse. And this is just um, a really deep look from people great at writing about society um, into kind of um, one of the more unique factions <laughs> that might have felt rage at the government despite having reached a position in society where they own their own jets. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't I hadn't seen that story. That's how, that, that's that's amazing. Jason, what caught your attention? There uh there's this great story in the Philadelphia Inquirer uh about a uh a, a former green beret who came back from Vietnam, worked for uh, his uncle's concessions business at uh, Veterans Stadium in Philadelphia, and then built a secret apartment in <laughs> behind the concession stands that he lived in for two years. <laughs> uh, it, from like uh, seventy nine to eighty one, when his uncle lost the concessions business, and you know some of it is you know like the you know just sort of resourcefulness because he's a former special uh, forces guy. Uh, some of it, uh, the story gets into him sort of dealing with uh, like the the trauma of of being in Vietnam, and some of it is just fun. You know, he, he had parties there with some of the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he he would roller skate around the the concourse and it was just this thing because he also was in charge of some of the parking uh uh you know sort of operations so people got used to seeing him there and that was part of his cover and he just it's this great fun story about this dude who just kind of lived the ultimate philadelphia yeah. fan uh <laughs> dream of living in the vet <laughs> i hope he had some philly cheesesteaks while he was uh, skirting skating around <laughs> melanie from the west coast <laughs> how uh, about your favorite story? Sure. Well, my favorite story is very West Coast centric, and I would say it's recall adjacent. Um, and it is how uh, Gavin Newsom announced this week that he was asked that if if Senator Dianne Feinstein uh, stepped down, yeah. if he would replace uh, her with a with a black woman, which of course, uh, there's a lot of, of, of meaning to that, because 
Uh, he was able to appoint the replacement to Kamala Harris. He chose Alex Padilla, the first Latino senator from California. But of course, that meant that there were no black women in the Senate. So there's a lot of political repercussions. The reason I love this story, though, is that it, it hits on a bunch of my favorite themes. The first is politicians stepping on their own message. Uh, he was supposed to spend this week talking about uh, why he shouldn't be recalled. And then he got snared in this big back and forth <laughs> of if he was throwing Dianne Feinstein under the bus. There's obviously lots of speculation about what her political future is, if she's going to be staying in the Senate much longer. Feinstein is an ally and mentor of his, but it kind of looked like he was sort of nudging her towards the door, which got people's eyebrows raised. It also spilled out in a way where you got a lot of guessing games. California has a logjam of, of very ambitious Democrats who want those top posts. So a lot of text messages back and forth about who potential names could be. And it spilled over into uh, a lot of, of rivalries playing out uh, publicly, including an a advisor uh, for Gavin Newsom sniping on Twitter with the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. Uh, the whole thing just summed up for me this idea that California may be a one-party state, but that does not mean that all the Democrats lock hands and sing kumbaya. It's just as dysfunctional as anywhere else. And I felt that that story really hit all of the main uh, the main points. So I, I love uh, it. I'm glad you brought it up. And what a monumentally stupid thing for Gavin Newsom to say, uh, by the way. So my favorite story of the week is um, one that I didn't like seeing. I was outraged particularly as a Catholic, outraged, uh, when the Vatican announced that Catholic priests, by the way, I would say probably half of Catholic priests are gay, um, that really outraged me when the Vatican said the Catholic priests cannot bless same-sex unions because God does not bless sin. Uh, I mean, come on time for the Catholic Church to get into at least the 20th century, if not the 21st century. But here's what I really found outrageous about that, is that um, Elton John last year, all right, a very, very successful movie called Rocket Man, uh, which talked about all of his relationship with his husband, David Furnish. Uh, Elton John revealed in the wake of the Vatican's announcement that the major investor in that movie uh, an investor that made millions and millions of dollars out of Rocket Man was, you guessed it, the Vatican, the Catholic Church. So it looks like, uh, if, if I may use the phrase, the Vatican is trying to have it both ways when it comes to same-sex unions, which as a former theological student reminded me of that famous quote from the scripture, would that you were either hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So there, I say that back to Pope uh, Francis about his statement about same-sex unions. Uh, all right, I got that off my chest. I feel a lot better. Hey, <laughs> Melanie Mason, great to have you on board. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. Jason Dick and Hunter Walker, good to have you both back. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. And thank you all for listening today. Thank you for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. And I remind you once again, please don't listen to Rand Paul. Masks are not theater. Listen to Dr. Fauci. Please wear your mask. Continue to wear your mask. We're not out of the woods yet. Wearing your mask. It's the right thing to do. It's the patriotic thing to do to protect your fellow Americans. So take care of yourselves. Have a great weekend. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.